right, let's open up to Amos chapter 8. Everybody knows where Amos is, right? It goes, yeah, somewhere, well, not really in the back, more like halfway. It goes Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, I believe. Eighth chapter. Flies on babies. Flies on babies. You heard me correctly. Flies on babies. That was the name of the class that a buddy of mine took at, for his undergrad at Biola. Flies on babies. And it focused on this concept of like showing images of babies on flies for mission trips and how that could stimulate fundraising efforts. And it could help accomplish the mission of of whatever that fundraising effort was, if you, if you showed the flies on the babies. And we've all seen the commercials, right? If you picture in your mind's eye, you've got Sarah McLaughlin singing, I will remember you. Remember that? I'm not trying to do open mic, but you've got Sarah McLaughlin in the background, and, and you've got the picture of, of the starving child with the bulging belly and the flies swarming around it. And then as the picture pans out, you see the mother with her sunken in eyes holding that child. And the imagery is moving. It is. Because that thought of starvation and famine, it, it runs deep. And so possibly you're moved to, to offer up a prayer, or perhaps you open the checkbook and you give a pledge. Maybe you turn the page or flip the channel. But the thought of famine and starvation, it runs deep, and that's why those images are so impactful to us. And here in our text today, Amos comes on the scene and he talks about a famine that is coming. Pick up with me in the, the eighth chapter, the eleventh verse, it says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, from north to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and they shall not find it. In that day, the fair virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. And they that swear by the sin of Samaria and say, Thy God, O Dan, lives, and the manner of Beersheba lives. Even they shall fall and never rise up. Jesus, we stop to pause as we have read these words, and we say, Lord, would you speak to us? Spirit, would you move in our hearts, and would we receive the words that you have for your church this morning? Amen. Anytime you open a prophet, it's important that you understand uh, a few key factors. Most of the Old Testament, but the prophets specifically, you need to understand, um, A, how is this applicable to the people presently? It's a word for a specific people in a specific time, and how is it applicable? B, with the prophets, 
How is it applicable prophetically? Whether for future events or end times, how is it applicable prophetically? And lastly, every time we open the word, we need to understand how is it applicable for the individual personally? And we'll hit on all three of those a little bit as we kind of go through this section. But it's important to understand there's a famine that's coming. Now, this takes place approximately 760 BC under the reign of, reign of Jeroboam II. Now, it's interesting because you guys know how when the, when the tribes of Israel basically split into two kingdoms, you had Israel under King David and under King Solomon. But after Solomon's death, uh, the, the kingdom split. The northern ten kingdoms would take on the, the name of Israel, and the southern two tribes would take on the name of Judah. And so this is getting spoken directly to those north ten tribes under King Jeroboam II. And what's important to understand is there had been about 400 years of war up into this point with, with the nation Syria from above. They would attack, they would invade, they would pillage. They would attack, they would invade, they would pillage. Time after time again, for 400 years, the Syrians would oppress them. But yet this King Jeroboam II, he comes on the scene, and he's not a good king. But yet under him, the northern kingdom had unparalleled prosperity. His, king, his, his reign was about 40 years, and they had unparalleled prosperity back all the way to the times of Solomon. They had actually beaten back the Syrian army. They had expanded their borders. They had recaptured, taken territories, and they had collected all of the uh, sea trade routes on the coast. And so militarily, they had safety. Economically, they had prosperity. When they took back the, the, the trade lines on the coast, there was a key trade line that, that came from Egypt in the south up to Syria in the north, and they had all of those trade routes. And so they would tax, and they would tariff, and they would collect the funds, and they were prospering. It was a great time. Not only that, religiously speaking, they were doing well. Not as far as worshiping the Lord, but, but they had these, these calves set up in, in other places, actually two specific places, Dan and Bethel. And they would travel and they would worship. They were worshipers and they had this, this high-class religious system set up. They were the intellectual epicenter and the religious, philosophical, culture hub. And they thought they had it all together. Peace, safety, prosperity. And then here comes this little hick from this hick town in southern Judah called Tekoa. And he was the hick of the hicks. And he would travel up north to this religious epicenter, and he would, he would proclaim not safety, safety, prosperity, prosperity, but famine, famine, judgment, judgment. And they'd look at him, and they'd say, get out of here, Amos. We don't hear, want to hear any of your stuff. Go prophesy in Judah. You don't, we don't want you here in Bethel. This is the king's house. 
But nonetheless, he had a word for him. Famine is coming. Famine is coming. Famine is coming. So as we dig into this famine, I want to look at three key factors. One, the reality of the famine. Two, the result of the famine. Three, the reason for the famine. Now, the real reality of the famine was not that it would be a ceasing from proclaiming and from preaching the word, but it would be from hearing and heeding. The word would still be preached. They had prophets that still came in. The, the, the words of the Lord were uttered, but they couldn't hear. Truly, the, the words of Isaiah would come true. They said, these, these guys like worship me or honor me with their mouth, but their, their hearts are far from me. They can't hear. I think of our culture today. Back when I was in the school of ministry, uh, sermons getting put in cassette tapes was like a really cool thing. And so you would like check it out from like the church office and you would go play the cassette tape and then you'd turn it back in. It was really cool. It was high tech. We had, we had these walls that had like all these commentaries and then we had these cassettes that you could get to and it was great. But we moved from cassette tapes to CDs and CDs to MP3 players and from MP3 players to these little devices in our pockets. And we have a world of knowledge and understanding at our fingertips. And yet I can't think of a more biblically illiterate culture and generation. The famine was not in the preaching of the word, but it was in the hearing. He also says it's not in the word singular, but it's in the words plural. You guys know how in, in the New Testament there's actually two Greek words for word that's used, logos and rhema. One of them represents like the big thundering word of God, like Jesus is actually encapsulated in it in John chapter 1. You guys know that. But as Logos has mentioned, it, it talks about like this full scope of word and concept and idea. But Ramah spoke about in, in a subtle, more exacting and specific form. It's the lack of the personal word to you. And you can't hear either. I can't help but think of, of the writer of Hebrews and what he meant in, in chapter 5 where he's talking about Melchizedek and how Jesus is greater than that. And he's a priest under Melchizedek. And he's like, I, I want to tell you guys all about this. But, but he says, of whom I say I have many things to say. He has a lot of things he wants to tell, but he says, they're hard to be uttered, seeing that you are dull of hearing. For when the time ought to be that you should be teachers, you have need that someone teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, 
and are become as such as have need of milk and not of strong, ne strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in, the, unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use has their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving, a, leaving the principles of the doctrines of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. The author of Hebrews there lists, lays out all these doctrines that he calls foundational. He says, these are principle, guys. These are like, this is the easy stuff. And yet you can't get it. And as I read through some of those doctrines, I think, when is the last time that our church has preached on them? Not necessarily us, but possibly. How often do you listen to a sermon where you're like, oh man, doctrine. The word of God spoken with power. Some of the stuff in that list there, I think, a lot of us might be hard-pressed to define. We're called to proclaim the gospel, and yet we have a hard time defining it. We're called to speak truth into people's lives, and yet we don't know what truth is because we do not hear the word of the Lord. And so there's a result that takes place. In chapter 12, it says, They shall wander from sea to sea and from north even to east. They shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, and they shall not find it. And so as a result, they wander. They have restlessness. We have a lot of that here in our culture, I think. I've got a few stats for you I'd like to read. The self-help industry right now is a $13.2 billion industry in the United States in 2022. In 2023, $972 million of that will be accounted in book sales. The Brandon Burhard seminars have over 2 million people attending just his. We wander to and fro, seeking somebody that will give us the words of God. And so we seek out our Tony Robbins for, for unleashing the unlimited power within. And, and when we find out that that power is lacking, we go, well, what about, what about unveiling the giant within? And, and we're like, oh, man, that giant's a little bit small. And so, so then we, we go to like Rhonda Byrne, and she seems to know the secret. And we find out that her secret doesn't really exist and and we go for Elizabeth Gilbert because she's like well we can just eat and pray and love we just wander the restlessness is deep And then after we, we wander with our restlessness and we find that whatever we're searching for out there doesn't exist, we, 
we become weary within. In verse 13, it says, In that day shall the fair virgins and the young men faint for thirst. Who is always the victims of our cultural inadequacies? The kids. Those who should be vibrant and vigor have no strength and no energy. Those who should be beautiful and comely all of a sudden are, are filled with bitterness and they wither away. But and so we wander with our restlessness trying to find something and we find it lacking and so we, we give up and we wonder why this generation is so cynical. And this isn't just out there, it's most definitely in here. It's in the church. We can take the low-hanging fruit, your Joel Osteens and your T.D. Jakes's and your Joyce Myers, but it's not limited to that. We've got some of those mainline guys that, that have walked away from orthodoxy, your elevations and your hill songs, your Bethels, and maybe that's a little too close to home. Let me take a little bit further. How about our watered-down sermons from our so-called Orthodox brothers, our Judah Smiths and our Levi Luscos, our fallen Carl Lenses? They give us sermonettes for Christianettes, but they're spiritual impostures. And as a church, we need to repent. We should not stand for this stuff anymore. And if we don't have the control over that out there, what we do control is what's in here. We wander and we grow weary. And there's a reason for that found in verse 14. It says, this is the reason, because they that swear by the sin of Samaria and say, O God of Dan lives, thy God, O Dan lives, and the manner or the way of Beersheba lives. And it says, even they shall fall and never rise up again. And truly, the northern kingdom, after they got taken away as captives, they never did return again. The northern kingdom of Israel does not exist even today. But the reason is, they worshipped. Their worship was lacking. It was full of idolatry and insincerity. What do I mean by that? 1 Kings chapter 12, you guys know, Jeroboam I took reign, right? This is right at the split of the two kingdoms. Jeroboam the first takes reign because they don't want, he doesn't want people traveling back to Jerusalem to worship, right? Because you know, Jerusalem was where Solomon's temple was, where David said, they'll come here. God said, this is where my resting place is going to be. But Jeroboam comes on the scene. He's got northern 10 tribes and he says, if they travel back to Jerusalem, I'm going to lose my people. And so he builds two golden calves, just, just like Moses did in the wilderness. He builds two golden calves, and he puts one in Dan and one in Bethel. 
And Amos, in the fifth chapter, if you go back a couple of chapters, he calls him out for this because what, what Jeroboam meant to do was stop the people from going to Jerusalem. What he actually did was he built two worshiping systems. And the people of Israel would still go to Jerusalem and celebrate their feasts and their festivals and their sacrifices to God, and they would still give. And then they couldn't wait, Amos says, they couldn't wait to get back to their idolatry in Dan and Bethel. And so they had two forms of worship. They would worship the true and living God when they would travel to Jerusalem. And then they would hurry up and go home and worship their idols, which are full of all kinds of sacrilege, child sacrifice and temple prostitution. They couldn't wait, Amos 5 says. And so they would play church on Sundays, and then they would go run with the world the rest of the week. And I can't help but feel like that's a little bit of a mirror. Looking back at what we do. As we gather on Sundays, we sing songs and we shake a few hands and we get our socialization in but we can't wait to get back to our stuff. I've been burdened by this for a while. If you know much of my wife and I's stories, We've been praying for what the Lord is going to do in the church. We need reformation. We need to call back to orthodoxy. We need to turn our Sunday worship holy again. Personally, possibly you're in the state of famine. You're in the place where I read my Bible, but I don't hear from the Lord. I go to church, but I get nothing. I engage in fellowship with other believers, but I feel just as empty as I did before. You may say to me, like, isn't that a time when, when the Lord should, should speak out louder? I consider his silence sometimes his grace. Because if that's you, if that's me, we should see that as a flashing yellow light. There's trouble ahead. Proceed with caution. If that's you or that's me, we should 
hear it as a sounding alarm, as a siren going off saying, you're not in the right place. Sometimes God's silence can be God's grace. In Mark chapter 4, you guys know the parable, but Jesus speaks of, of grain that gets cast out, seed that gets sown. And in this particular seed, it says that it sprung up. It took root. It grew up. And it was seemingly or apparently healthy. But then it says, Jesus, Jesus says, he's telling this parable, it says that these thorns and these thistles, they grow up and it chokes out this nice little bush. And so they go back and the disciples are like, Jesus, what are you talking about? And he says, let me tell you something. That seed that gets sown is the scriptures, it's the word of God. And when it finds soft soil of the heart, it takes root and it grows. But the thorns and the thistles are three things specifically, he says. They're the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the lust for other things. And is it possible that in my heart or in your heart, we have constructed an idol? the cares of this world, or my family and what is it looking like, and is, are my kids becoming my idol, the cares of this world? Is there something that's getting placed in front of God in my life? Or the deceitfulness of riches, do I have to work those extra hours to make that money, to get that car, to get that boat, to take that trip? the lust for other things? Is there something, something that's maybe subtle and hidden or maybe even obvious that you've been holding on to that's, that, you're, that your body and your mind has been left, lusting after? Those are the things that as they grow up, they choke the word of God in your life. So as Nick comes back up, this first song, you guys kind of know our, our flow, our liturgy. We, we utilize it to, to go get the bread and the cup, and we spend some time in prayer. As you do that, if that is you, I want you to consider some things. I want you to ask the Lord, open my eyes to what it is that has been blocking you and I. What is it that has deafened my ears from being able to hear you speaking to me? And I want you to pray about that as we, as we grab the cracker and we dip it in the cup and we come back and sing. Consider that for a moment. And then we'll come back together and we'll take it corporately but pray through that personally for me. What are the areas that I need to see? What are those places that have created a boundary between me and the Lord?
also Evan and some of the people will be in praying in the corner. And if this is a real gut check moment for you and you need prayer, we have people that are available for that. But let's stand and worship for the time and let's pray through some of this stuff. And then we'll come back and, and take communion.